this chapter 4, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 6. Uh, because we're taking such a big chunk of the chapter, we're not going to read God's Word, so we're going to go directly right into it. So we've got prayers me, Father, thank you for life. Lord, you are the Lord of life. We rejoice in that. Lord, we are in a, in a season almost for the last year of uh, uh, uncertainty, but life still goes on. Well, I'm sure the last couple of weeks uh, here at the crossing where uh, the gospel has been proclaimed and, uh, and James and Abby uh, received Christ and they were baptized. I think of uh, all the engagements that are happening. I think of celebrating anniversaries over the last couple of weeks. Lord, and we also just witnessed a dedication of little Callie. Lord, life still moves on and you are still the Lord and the sovereign God who runs and rules our lives. And you are taking this world to its desired end, to your desired end, for your glory and our joy. And we're a part of that. We are along for the ride. And Lord, today's text helps inform us on how to walk through life. Sometimes when even your people obey, life can still be hard as you will see in Moses' life today. And so Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning what you have for us. Let the Holy Spirit teach each and every one of us as we proclaim your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Exodus chapter 4. During the history of the world, all of us have, have heard or learned about great showdowns, great fights, great battles between individuals, and, and sometimes we've also seen some of those things. Immediately in my mind, when I think of, of epic battles between men, I think of William Wallace against the King of England, right? Uh, for me personally, I think of Tombstone, the, the battle at the OK Corral, because I grew up in Tucson, Tucson, Arizona, and Tucson was just about an hour and a half uh, away from us. And I remember growing up as a little kid, like little Zeke up here, we would go to Tucson and they would reenact the gunfights right there in the OK Corral, right there in Tucson. And the guns were going off and people were getting shot and, and falling. It was just incredible. Uh, I think of, on a lighter site, I think of Batman versus Superman, right? The great epic battles. Now, I know in the movies and in the comic books, I believe that Batman beats Superman. But let me just inform you. Uh, in, if, that was, if that was true and it happened in our time space, if it was the reality, Batman doesn't have a chance, right? Superman whooped that boy every single time, right? Now, this is a big debate in our family because I think Nate, Nate thinks Batman wins. And I'm like, no way. Who thinks Batman would beat Superman? Raise your hand. All right. Well, anyways. We need to pray for those people. But anyways, we think of these epic, epic battles, right? We think of these epic battles and showdowns throughout history. Well, this morning, this morning we ring the bell on probably the most epic battle in the history of mankind between good and evil, except for uh, the Easter story. It, Easter story is the ultimate battle where Jesus defeats sin, death, and hell. But here we're going to talk about in one corner, we have the challenger Moses. The challenger Moses, the, the prophet, the servant of God. And in the other corner, we have the most powerful man in the world. The, the king, the champion at that time, we have Pharaoh. And it's an epic battle. And we're going to take the next several weeks covering this epic battle between Moses and Pharaoh. And this morning, as we kick it off as the bell this morning we will be see the beginning rounds of these two men kind of stealing each other out as they're jabbing one another. And we know in 
In Moses' corner, we have the Lord. The, the Lord is the one who trained Moses. The Lord is the one who's coaching Moses. The Lord who is, is, is Moses' tactician in navigating the situation in which the Lord wants Moses to fight. And he, Moses, is probably thinking like, man, this is going to be easy. This is going to be easy. I just met the Lord at the burning bush. And he kind of said, hey, this is, this is who I am. This is going to be easy. The Lord is on my side. I'm going to go and tell uh, go and see Pharaoh, tell him let my people go. And he's going to say, it's not a problem. But what we're going to learn is it's not always smooth sailing when it carries out the Lord's will. It's going to be a fight sometimes. Life and following the Lord is going to be a fight. So let's dive right in. The first thing we see is Moses' journey back for the fight. In Exodus chapter 4, 18 through 31, we're going to finish up Exodus chapter 4. We see Moses' journey back to the fight. We just saw in Exodus chapter 3 and a little bit of 4, Daniel 2 last week, we saw an epic uh, scenario, uh, an epic encounter with the Lord and Moses at the burning bush. The, the Lord declaring who He is, that He is the great I Am, the eternal one, the self-existing one, the all-powerful one, and He shows Moses and gives him miracles to prove his point. And then he tells Moses, hey, here's the, here's the fight plan. This is what's going to happen, Moses. And we see that Moses comes up with excuses on not to carry out that plan. These five excuses that Daniel touched on last week. But we see in the end here that Moses finally bows his knee and follows the Lord and starts to begin and walk his way back to Egypt. And a quick little side note. We know that Moses is the one who's, who's writing Exodus. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. He's, he's writing this. He's the author. And, and you remember in the beginning, in Exodus chapter 2, when he said uh, Moses was born, he says he was a special child, right? A good child, a fine child. But then we also need, uh, the last couple of weeks as we've gone through the story in this chapter, we also need to learn and, and should appreciate something about Moses. That he just doesn't put on the, the plastic exterior and, and he shows himself to be a hero with no issues, do we? We see he also shares his deficiencies, his shortcomings as a, as a man, uh, as a leader, as a follower. We see that he is what's hot-tempered. We see that uh, he is his immaturity as a leader. We even see him doubt. Doubt the Lord right there at the burning bush. And so that should bring him comfort this morning. I know it brings me comfort because... We see that the Lord called Moses not because he was perfect, not because he had it all together. No, Moses was a sinner just like us. In fact, he's probably worse than us. And yet, we should be encouraged because God handpicked Moses to carry out his will. And he does the same today for you and me. He sees you as his child, as his ambassador, with all your flaws, but he calls you to his son Christ. He's giving you a spirit, he's giving you a word that we can go out and be ambassadors. So be, be encouraged by Moses in his life when he writes about his deficiencies as a human being. Side note kills. All right, in these last 13 verses of chapter 4, we're going to see five different interactions. Uh, but what Moses does, he just does a flyover. He doesn't fly. He doesn't give us much detail about this, but we're going we're gonna to do the same. We're going to kind of do a flyover and just kind of pull out some main points in this section. That's what you do with narrative. Narrative is different than the didactic books like we have in the New Testament, like Ephesians, Galatians, where there's logical sequences. Narrative is a story. So what we want to do is mine out the, the high points of the story. What, what is God trying to tell us? And this is what we see in the end of Exodus chapter 4. First in Exodus 4, 18, we see that Moses does come down the mountain. He goes to 
goes to his father, Jethro. And we see again the Lord's, I mean, Moses' obedience. Where he asked Jethro, his father-in-law, but not only his father-in-law, his boss. He works for Jethro, right? He was the shepherd of his sheep. And he asked him, he says, hey, I have a mission from God. And so after 40 years, he's asked if he could leave. If he could take Jethro's daughter, uh, his wife, Zipporah, and leave and go back to Egypt and receive the graciousness of his father-in-law, Jethro, and he says, well, go in peace. And then we see in Exodus chapter 4, 19 through 23, we see that the Lord is, uh, meets Moses on the journey to Egypt. He, he meets him and he adds some much needed information to, to comfort Moses as Moses is, is going down to Egypt. He tells him, hey, this is, this is what's awaiting you. Because Moses, you can imagine, he's taking on his wife, he's going to drive his donkey with his family, and he's like, man, I, I wonder how they're going to receive me in Egypt. I wonder, I wonder if the Pharaoh's still alive and there's still people there that want to see me dead. They want to kill me. And you see that Mo, uh, uh, the Lord answers him and says, hey, all that would seek vengeance on you are dead. So he's trying to comfort Moses. And Moses has any thoughts going to Egypt. And then, and then what the Lord does, he says, hey, Moses, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen when you go to Egypt. And he tells him what's going to happen. You're going to go before Pharaoh. And you're going to do all these miracles. And you're going to tell the, the Pharaoh to let my people go. But I'm going to harden his heart. And he, he's going to say no. He said, I, I want you to let Israel is my firstborn. They're my child. They're, I, I am the father to them, and I want them to be free. And so the Pharaoh doesn't do this, so there's going to be judgment on his firstborn. And so the Lord, Lord takes this and says, but I'm going to harden heart on Pharaoh's heart. Now this little, this little section, we're just going to spend a brief time on it, because we're going to spend uh, a number of times talking about this. This, this, this little phrase, harden Pharaoh's heart, is going to appear 19 times in the next several verses. And there's always a theological debate that goes on between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And we see it here. We see it here. And we're not gonna we're not gonna, you know, this this mystery, we're not gonna come to all the answers. But let me just give you a couple little things about this phrase and how the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's used four different ways in these next uh, nineteen times we'll see in the coming verses. The first way it's used, it's used here like I, Yahweh, the Lord, will harden Pharaoh's heart. Three times we're going to see that in the Scripture. And then it's going to say that Yahweh will actually harden Pharaoh's heart. We're going to see that six times over the next several verses. And then it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We're going to see that seven times. And then finally, the fourth way we see it is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And we see that three times. And so we see 16 out of 19 times that we... It seems like the Lord is the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, again, there's a lot of commentary on this, but Paul gives us probably the greatest commentary on this to answer that question from God's sovereign human responsibility found in Romans chapter 9, where Paul brings up this very situation about the Lord as hardening Pharaoh's heart. This is what Paul says. For this very purpose, I, the Lord, have raised up Pharaoh that, uh, that my name and power might be great and known throughout the whole earth. And so that's the commentary. When we, when we look at the story of redemption, the story of redemption, everything, everything always begins with the Lord and His plan, His sovereignty, the way He has ordained or, and orchestrated salvation and redemption. And here what we see is that He is the only King He's the only king in heaven and on earth. He is the sovereign 
thing, from the 30,000 foot view on what's happening in the world at large, all the way down to individuals. He is the one who is ordaining our lives. And for that, other quick note on this little section. Um, and even more so, the reason why I believe that the Lord is, is having this conversation is as Moses is walking or riding down to um, Egypt to save Pharaoh. One, again, he wants to make his name great. But he also wants, again, he wants to comfort Moses. He wants to assure Moses what he's been called to. And so he tells him what's going to take place. He tells Moses that Pharaoh is not going to be a pushover. Expect a fight. Expect confrontation. He's just not going to lie down and say, okay, yeah, sure, take the 1.5 million people, uh, Israel, with you and just go ahead and leave. He's not going to do that. It's going to be a fight. And so when that happens, Moses, don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged. Don't worry. I want you to take, keep this thought in your mind when we get to the Exodus, the end of Exodus chapter 5 and see if Moses remembers this. But the Lord is telling Moses, hey, things are going to get harder before they get better. So that's the second encounter. Third encounter we see is in Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. And here we come to some of the most interesting parts in all of Scripture. Look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 24 with me. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That is Moses. Then Zipporah took a flint, a rock, and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so he let him alone. And it was there, it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, who wants to come up and just kind of teach that from the pulpit this morning? Anybody? Anyone want to tackle this issue? You know, Rich, Rich comes to my office this Thursday with a big smile on his face. And the first thing he does is he sits down and goes, hey, 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 how are you going to teach this passage, right? What, what, what are you going to say about this? I'm thinking, like, man, I don't know. Maybe I should have gave this to our intern Chad to come up and preach, right? Maybe that's what I should have done. One said this about this passage. These verses remind us how shocking and strange the Old Testament can be. These verses remind us how shocking and strange, strange the Old Testament can be. Because this is our context. We have no, no grit for this. No filter. I mean, God, uh, think about this. God just called Moses, just met him on the mountain, showed him who he was in this burning bush. Because you're going to do all these miracles. And all of a sudden it says, and the Lord sought to kill Moses? Like, what the heck? What is going on? Right? And then all of a sudden you have his wife, Sephora. What the what is she doing? What is she thinking? So let's see if we can kind of explain this. Moses, again, as we know, was God's man. God called Moses to be the leader, to, to lead out his covenant people from Egypt. He was the ultimate ambassador. He was the representative of God here on earth. He was to lead his people. He was supposed to be the model of what it means to be a covenant partner, covenant leader in Israel. Not perfectly, but you should carry out at least the, the basic commands of what it means to fulfill the covenant. And the basic commands of what it means to fulfill the covenant, as we find out in Genesis chapter 7, 17, is that you were married and you had, uh, and you had children, in particular sons. The sign of the covenant is that you are to circumcise your boy. That is what you should do. That's like covenant 101 in the Old Testament. And if you don't, if you disobey that covenant, Genesis 17, 14 says this, play on words, if you don't cut it off, you will be cut off. Basically, he says, say, if you, if you disobey, say you shall be cut off if you don't take this. 
And so here we see Moses firstborn Gershon, not circumcised. And maybe his other sons are, here, are not circumcised. Therefore the Lord was disciplining Moses because Moses was disobedient. And many believe it says that, that Moses was incapacitated at this point. He was basically fraught uh, with some kind of sickness or illness and lay, literally laying on his deathbed because he doesn't act. The one who acts is Zipporah, his wife. She's the one who acts. She, she somehow puts two and two together. She somehow puts like, man, the reason why Moses is sick and dying is because he's in disobedience. Because he did not circumcise our son. So what does she do? She takes out a sharp rock, a rock scalpel. Think about that. Talk about an oxymoron, right? Like jumbo shrimp, rock scalpel. And she cuts off her son's foreskin. And she's like, well, that's crazy. But not only she does that, but then when she does, she takes the foreskin and she taps Moses' feet with it. In the original language, some say it's like she threw it at him, right? What is going on? And the reason why she did that was probably to associate Moses as the one who um, was, was responsible for the act. Because again, in the covenant, the man, the, the husband, the father, was the one that's supposed to do that. And so immediately when this happens, it says that Moses' sickness left his body. In fact, verse 26 says, and the Lord let him alone. And so, you know, there's not much more to say about this except for this. Okay, ready? Praise the Lord for Zipporah, right? I mean, thank the Lord for Zipporah. Can we give it up for Zipporah, right? I mean, think about it. Thank the Lord for a faithful wife. When, when her husband is walking in disobedience, she steps up to the plate. She answers the call. She intercedes for Moses. She does what Moses should have done. And the Lord honors that and bless that. If it wasn't for Zipporah, the story of Exodus would be over right then. So praise the Lord for Zipporah. And husband, if you, if you have a wife like Zipporah, if you have a wife that fears the Lord, that has convictions to follow, and, and, and first and foremost, the Lord more than you, first and foremost, that, praise her. Thank the Lord for your wife each and every day. I know I thank the Lord for my wife each and every day. Because of her faith, because of her conviction, because of her willingness to call me out when I'm walking in disobedience. For her willingness to step in the gap for our family. Just like Zipporah did for her family. So praise the Lord for Zipporah. Men, thank the Lord for your wives that are faithful. It's a beautiful thing. And again, we can see Moses here. What is he doing as an author? He's been highlighting since Exodus chapter 2 on how uh, valued he has uh, seen the women in his life and how he exalts them in the story of redemption. May we continue to do the same in our own homes and here at the cross. Praise the Lord for support. Fourth and fifthly, we see this interaction again with Moses now with his brother Aaron. They're reunited after 40 years. They've been separated for 40 years. These brothers and, and Aaron hears the call from the Lord. He obeys the Lord and goes and meets Moses out in the desert. And you can just see Moses when they see each other. They, they grasp each other. They hug each other. They kiss each other. And you can see Moses like, man, Aaron, do I got some stuff to tell you, right? Do I got some stuff to tell you? And Aaron likewise. And so they have this moment together. 
And then Moses shows Aaron and tells Aaron what the Lord has told him. And he said, man, they go back together in tandem as his co-leaders of Israel to tell the elders. And the elders hear the story of what the Lord is going to do. And it says they worship. I want you to really not think and put yourself in their spot. They've been enslaved for 400 years to Egypt. Then all of a sudden, they get a word from the Lord. The Lord is beside. All of a sudden, they get a word from the Lord saying, You are going to be the generation in which sees my redemption. You, you, and I, we're going to be the ones that, that receive the covenant blessings and go and get to go and live in the promised lands. You get to one. You're the generation I chose, and I choose to experience that redemption out of slavery and into freedom. Can you imagine the first time of those elders? First time is what they do. They worship. They were filled with joy. Can you imagine that feeling? Let me tell you something. You've experienced that feeling already if you're in Christ. You have experienced that love, that joy, that peace, that freedom if you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because this is what redemption is. The gospel redeems us, not so much from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery. The Bible says that we are all slaves to sin outside of Christ. But when we see that we're helpless, when we see that our hearts are hard and they're dark, when we see that we cannot save ourselves, and we hear the gospel proclaimed and the good news of Christ, and what He has done for us in our life, death, and resurrection, and when we repent of our sins and we trust in Him, what happens? Remember that experience. Freedom. Joy. Peace. Flood your soul. You know exactly what the people of Egypt, I mean, the people of Israel were feeling back then. He said, you get to, you get, you get to experience in technical, in 4K, HD, TV. Because we get to look back and see that Jesus was our Savior. That He is the greater Moses, the greater Redeemer. So, wow, what is our response? Our response is the same as theirs. It's, it's to worship. It's to thank the Lord for what He has done in our lives. So first we see Moses goes back to get ready for the fight. Second we see in chapter 5, we see Moses engages Pharaoh and throws the first punch. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a peace to me in the wilderness. Verse 2, But Pharaoh said, Praise the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So the announcement of the fighters has been made. In this corner, Moses. In this corner, Pharaoh. The bell has been rung. They come together. Moses throws the first, the first, first punch. Let my people go. Doesn't face Pharaoh. Doesn't face Pharaoh. Pharaoh counters with, I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let their people go. So Moses tries to counter again in verse 3. He says this. Then they said, Aaron, the God of the Hebrews, I do not know this Lord. Well, he's the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And notice. Notice Moses. Remember, Moses was pretty much a hothead. He had, he had a struggle holding on to his temper in the past. But here we see Moses is polite. He's like, but, but Pharaoh, pretty please, right? He says, 
overcome with an anger that's controlled by the Spirit. He says, please, Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh, what? You have none of it. He'll have none of it. In fact, it, it ticks Pharaoh off. He gets more annoyed to the point that he starts to add more, more burden. He, he wants the people to fulfill their role, to fulfill their work. In fact, this situation is taking them away from their work. So therefore, Pharaoh adds more work, more burden, more trial to them. In verse 9 it says, Let heavier work be laid on the men so that they may labor at it and pay no regard to these lying words of Moses and Aaron. And in fact, I'm just going to make it even worse for the children of Israel as they're building these bricks. What I'm going to do is you need to keep the same quarter made, but I'm going to take away the straw. You now have to go on your own and grab the straw. The straw was kind of like the adhesive. It was like the binding in the brick. That was what would keep the bricks together was the straw. Pharaoh so picked up and said, Now I'm going to increase your labor, but I'm going to increase your labor by making it an impossible task. You've got to go get your own straw now. And this is, this is like impossible. This is not going to happen. But this would be like IHOP, you know, the cook in IHOP having to go find their own pigs so they can have bacon to cook for you guys, right? This is going to be like Chick-fil-A, right? Make your own sandwiches. The employees are going to have to go find their own chickens. But it's also intense. It's an impossible task. And to the point in verse 12, it says that they, they couldn't even find the straw, so they used stubble. They used stubble as the, the binding agent for these bricks. One cool archaeological fact here is in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 5. In, in 1908, uh, some archaeologists found uh, the city of Pithon. Pithon is one of the cities that, that Israel built. Ramesses and Pithon. And what they found was, at the very initial lower levels of this course as they dug up the city, they saw the, the, the lower levels of this course or the structures, they said, the, uh, were the bricks that were that they used to build this first level, they were filled with good and chopped straw. They said, but in the middle courses, there's hardly any straw, and they saw what they found was stubble. And they finally said the upper forces were made of just pure clay with no straw. So here what we have is some outside sources. Archaeologists telling us that this is exactly what happened. Is that Pharaoh got even angry when Moses messed let my people go and said, man, you're going to have to build with the same amount of bricks without straw and with these stubble. And we see for the next ten verses, we see the punishment executed by Pharaoh to his taskmaster, from the taskmasters to the Hebrew warrior, to the people then working. And we see that they don't meet the quota, and Pharaoh then just starts to verbally abuse and calling them idle and calling them lazy. Again, it was an impossible task. So what we see here in chapter 5 is we see that Moses and Aaron come and they have this request, and, and the people of Israel. Uh, they're, they're excited, the morale is high. And when they see that Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let you go. In fact, I'm going to make their burden the situation even worse. The morale takes a dip. Their backs have been broken. And if they start crying out to you, they don't start crying out to the Lord, which is what they should have cried out to. They start crying out to Pharaoh. They start crying out to Pharaoh. And now they're also really, really angry with Moses. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. 
the Lord look on you and judge you. This is what they said to Moses. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. They have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Let's consider a couple of applications from this scene. First from Pharaoh. Let's look at Pharaoh. What does Pharaoh do? We, we see in Pharaoh, we see his pride. We, we, we see his rebellion. Refusing to hear anything from Moses and Aaron about this other God. He in his own mind, he is the picture of God on earth. He is he's actually descended, they believe, the sun God wrong. Therefore, no one was going to tell him, God on earth, what to do. Especially, especially some God whose slaves the past 400 years have been his slaves, have been the slaves of his people in Egypt. Who is this God? For the past 400 years, I have ruled your people. Now all of a sudden, you're coming to me to tell me to let my people go. So his pride, his rebellion was on display. But secondly, and most importantly, as we see that he was blind. Again, he had a hard heart. This is exactly what the Lord said he was going to do. He was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So therefore, he, had an, he was incapable of receiving and obeying the words of the Lord, the commands of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And for us, this should, this should take us and propel us to the New Testament in Second Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where it says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God or the words of God. For they are followed to him, and, is not, and he, is, he or she is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What I'm saying here is the unbeliever, the one who doesn't know Jesus, when, when, when they hear the words of God, now put yourself in, in, in this situation before you knew Jesus. And people would talk to you about the gospel and how you responded to him. You probably responded to him a lot like Pharaoh. I want to be the God of my own life. Therefore, the words I hear, they don't make sense to me. They're foolishness to me. I am the one in control of my life, just like Pharaoh was thinking. This is what the unbeliever does. They hear the word of God, and they think they're pure fiction. They're false words. Which Pharaoh even says in verse 9, pay no attention to their what? Lying words. If we know this is what happens in the heart of an unbeliever when they are confronted with God's word, when they are confronted with the gospel. And what we need to remember is that us, as the Lord's modern-day ambassadors, and we, we are the, the modern-day Moses to, to be the modern-day ambassadors of proclaiming the word of the Lord, to go into our friends, to our family members, to our co-workers who do not, Jesus, who do not know Jesus, say, Thus says the Lord. To be saved, this is what He says, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but me, that is going to immediately, usually, uh, take someone who has a hard heart, and they're going to dismiss you. They might even get angry with you. They might even act like Pharaoh did, and make your relationship all the more of a burden. This is a good reminder for us to, to be like, man, just remember where we were before the Lord, and how you responded. It's a great reminder for us, as Moses did, he gave them multiple opportunities to repent, to let him go. He, Moses didn't get angry. Again, he, he was under control. He said, please, Pharaoh, please, Pharaoh. I, I, I almost begging Pharaoh to let your people go. And we need to do the same. We need the same to have the same heart. We need to have patience and self-control, i.e. the fruit of the Spirit. When we go and share the gospel, when we go and proclaim the gospel, the good news as ambassadors of God, knowing that maybe, yeah, 
It's great when someone hears it for the first time and repents and believes, but you do it to process, isn't it? Again, think about your own life. Let it process in your life. So let us be a people like Moses shows to be patient and self-control when those who hear the gospel for the first time reject us. And the reason why we do this is because this is how God does it. Again, this is we see God's grace and compassion from the Lord to Pharaoh when he gives him a couple of chances over and over again. We're going to see that throughout the next couple of chapters. God is constantly giving Pharaoh a chance to repent. And it will be more remain if he did it. But unfortunately for Pharaoh, he couldn't swallow his own pride. Therefore, we see that the Lord will give him over to his desires. So that's what we can learn from Pharaoh. What can we learn from Moses? What we see at the end of Exodus chapter 5 is Moses... Moses also goes in the tank. And he starts to question the Lord. He's like, why did you bring me out here? I thought it was going to be easy. I thought I was going to go to Pharaoh. I was going to do, do the miracles. I was going to say the words. And the Lord is like, yeah, yep, let your people go. But that's not what happens. Look at uh, Exodus 5, 22. This is Moses. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why have you ever sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to these people, and you have not delivered your people. So we see from Moses, we see that Moses, again, this, this application that even when we obey the Lord, it might not always be smooth sailing. The Lord, the Lord might be also doing some other things. He, he first might make the situation actually a little harder. He might make the valley a little deeper before he brings us up to the other side. And again, remember what the Lord told Moses in Exodus chapter 4. He said, this is exactly what's going to happen, Moses. And he said to comfort you, to assure you. And yet we see Moses totally forgot those words, didn't he? And we're like the same, like, come on, Moses, seriously. I mean, that was just a chapter ago. That was just a couple sentences ago. How can you have already forgot what the Lord told you? And yet, we see, we do the same thing that Moses did. We, we have the promises of God in His Word. Uh, multiple promises. We, we, we look back. This is what the, the Lord is going to do with Moses. We look back at what the Lord has done. And we have all these promises from the Lord, and yet we tend to act like Moses. We, we tend to more like act like the children of Israel and not go to the Lord directly first, but what do we do? We go to the secular sources around us. Man, my life is hard. I look over the landscape of this world. Instead of going to our knees to pray, we go to man, I, I can't wait till November so I can vote the election. I hope this person wins. Because once this person wins the election, oh, then all of our problems will, be, will go away. Or we tend to go to social media and Facebook and Twitter and all these other things, right? To make our case. And we should the Lord first. So even if like, Moses, come on, man, what are you doing? But let me just, let me just give us three ways in which we do that. Is there anyone in here that looks at the uncertainty of our world right now and gets a little anxious, gets a little worried on what life is going to look like, what your life is going to look like in the next year or five or ten years. The promise is in Matthew 6. He says, hey, don't worry about your life. Don't be anxious. How about this? You lack wisdom? You're like paralyzed with fear because you don't know how to to, to live in this world, you know what the next steps are going to be, you know what the job is going to be, if it's going to be there or not be there, you know what kind of world your kids are going to grow up because of the way it seems to be trending. The promise is if you, if you lack wisdom, ask God, He'll give it good morning. Okay, this is why we're doing, this is why we're focusing on prayer at man's school. So, man, be there tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Be there so we can intercede for our family, for our friends. 
for our country. And we can ask the Lord for wisdom and know that He will give it, rather than try and work and look at our own efforts to get by. Uh, this is John 16, 32. I'll certainly say to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. Again, sometimes even when we walk in obedience, sometimes the Lord doesn't give us instant blessing or instant healing or instant forgiveness or instant pain. It takes us deeper into the valley. Why? Because that's going to show us even more who He is and how, how much more we are dependent on Him. And you know what Moses, the good thing that Moses does is that when he sees this happening in verse 22, he does go to the Lord. And he starts to question the Lord. And this is not wrong. This is not bad. It's not bad to question the Lord. Questions are not sinful. When you look at your life and you see you're in a valley, and you're like, Lord, what are you doing? Psalm 77, I preached on this a couple of years ago, is a, is a whole psalm where the majority of the psalm is about the psalmist questioning the Lord and what he's doing is he's looking around in this world and how it seems to be going down with smile. He looks at his own life and seems to hurt him. He, he cries out to the Lord and asks the Lord for some questions. We even see Jesus question the Lord, don't we? Remember when he's on the cross? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So questions are not sinful. They're not bad. It all goes back to the motive of your heart. The Lord wants to hear from you. He wants to hear you cry out when you're in uncertain times, when you're feeling the pressure, the tribulation. When you start to worry, He wants to hear from you. And so when you approach the throne of grace, with honesty, with humility, and have a sincere idea like, Lord, I don't, I don't know what you're doing, but help me understand. That's what the Lord will mean. And that's what we answer our prayer. Over these last several months, I've been, I've been ministering on James chapter 4. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Now, we can almost now pray that this, this, this might even be like our theme verse for the crossing over the next several weeks, that, that we would be a people, first and foremost, that would draw near to the Lord. So the first act should be us falling to our knees and crying out to God and asking for wisdom on how to move through this world. So if any of you are in here right now, and you look at, you know, look at the world and there's uncertainty, you see the chaos, and you're starting to be anxious, you, you need wisdom, or maybe you're in a flat-out trial and you feel the tribulation, first and foremost, let it be the people that even see what Moses did, let's, let's cry out to the Lord, let's draw near to the Lord, and He wants Him to draw near to us. Well, finally, third, we get to our third point. The Lord gives wisdom in between rounds. Round one is over. The Lord now, Moses and Aaron go back to their corner, and the Lord steps in. And He gives wisdom. Exodus chapter 6, 1 through 3. Look at verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I have to do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand He will send them out. And with a strong hand the Lord will, will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said, I am. Am the Lord. We're about to see in 6 1, and we're about to see the Lord act. We're about to see the sovereignty of God. We're about to see his, his power, His wisdom, His might over this whole situation. We're about to see the Lord execute the plan in which He told Moses back in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4. The Lord sits Moses and Aaron down in the corner and recounts the story up to this point thus far in the story of redemption. He goes back all the way back to. Abraham, and when he called Abraham out of earth, 
He had the covenant promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the end of the chapter, he goes to this genealogy that connects Moses and Aaron, the tribe of Levi, the Jackson, that um, connects them to Abraham. He says, you are my guys. You are my leaders. And I want the people to see that. And we still see that, that Moses is still a little, a little nervous, a little anxious at the end of, of chapter 6. He says, but I'm still a man of uncircumcised lips. And Pharaoh will not listen to me. It's okay, Moses, because I am about to act. In fact, there's two phrases that I want you to really hone in on in chapter 6, especially as you go home and read this maybe afterwards and dive into it. The first one is the phrase, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. We see this four times here in verses 2, 6, 7, and 8. And what the Lord is doing, what Yahweh is doing, what He showed up and, 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 and showed Moses in Exodus chapter the burning book, He is now about to go global with it. He's about to go global with His power, His might, His majesty over the next several chapters. He's going to let the world know who He is, who this God is. Pharaoh says, I don't know who this God is. Well, he's about to find out who this God is. That He is the Lord. He is the great I Am. So that's the first thing. Second, this is so good. This is so good. Look at verses 6 through 8 in Exodus chapter 6. And I want you to take your pen, take your pencils, take your highlighters, and I want you to highlight the word, the word, I will. I will. We see this seven times, this phrase, I will. In verses, this is what the Lord says, I will bring you out from your burden. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with great acts. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into this promised land. I will give you possessions. One called these seven I wills. That's how I circle my count. I hope that I'm right. But the, the seven I wills of redemption. These are the seven I wills of redemption. This is what the Lord is going to do. This is what the Lord is going to do. This is what's going to happen in the future. This is what he's telling Moses and Aaron. This is what the, the people who are in bondage are going to find out. These I wills of redemption. This is what Israel is looking forward to. But here's what's amazing. These I wills are connected to us. There are I wills. These I wills of salvation are Israel's story, but they're also the church's story. The story of redemption. This is is not only Israel's history of what's going to happen, but this is our history of those who are in Christ. These I wills, the beginning of redemption, the beginning chords of the song of redemption, pointing forward to the church and what Christ will do, how Christ will fulfill it. So this story, these I wills, are our story. I love how one put it like this, one put it like this. In Exodus, the I wills become the I have done it in the gospel. goes on to say that this. In Exodus, we hear the first strings, the first chords of the melody of redemption. And when we get to the gospel, we see and hear the symphony of redemption. This is incredible. I want you, I want you to grasp it. I want you to think. Let's just, let's just meditate on these I wills of redemption and see how, how we look back because of Christ and we see that He's already done it. We've already experienced these things if we're in Christ. Look at the first one. I will bring out your burden. That, what, 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 do you, what do you think of when you hear that? I think of Matthew chapter 11, right? Come, all you who are weary, right, and heavy laden, and what? 
I will give you rest. I will relieve your burden. I will deliver you from slavery. I think of Romans chapter uh, of Romans chapter 6, where we're no longer slaves of sin, but what? We're now slaves of righteousness. I will redeem you with great acts. Hey, taking a staff and the snake coming out of it, that's pretty cool. When, when you take the Nile and it becomes a, a, a river of blood, and that's pretty cool. A bunch of frogs and, 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 and locusts and stuff, you know that? Okay, that's pretty cool. But it doesn't hold account to the resurrection of Christ, does it? Is there any greater act than the resurrection of Christ? I will redeem you with great acts. He redeems you with the greatest act, act of redemption and, and resurrection. I will take you to be my people. First John chapter 3, see what kind of love I have given you that I should call you the children of God as such you are. You are. You and I are the children of God. And then you have these, I will be your God. That's linked with John, first John 3. These last two, I will bring you in the promise that I will give you possession. These are almost already and not yet. These, these promises are true, but we, like Israel in this place, we're, we're kind of looking forward to, to this time, to this glorification when He brings us into the new heavens and the new earth, where He gives us the new possessions. That's when He gives us the mansions that are, are waiting for us in heaven. These are the I wills of redemption for Israel. But for us, it's what the Lord has already done. That's what it's done. incredible truths. And again, the emphasis here is that the sovereignty of God in redemption. In Scripture, it's always what the Lord does in our lives. It's not what we can do. It's not what we can do. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn it. Redemption is in the hands of the Lord. It's given to us. It's presented to us. And we receive it by faith. And if we try to reverse that, we try to reverse the, the gospel and make it about us and our works of righteousness. We will never have peace. This is why Paul begins using his letters with this grace and peace. And it's never in the reverse. It's never peace and grace. Because we will never know the redemption of God found in the grace of God. The grace of God always comes before the peace of God. Because you'll never know the peace of God until you understand the grace of God. This is why chapter 6 is such a beautiful chapter. And those seven ideas. This is what the Lord is going to do. And again, we look back and see what the Lord has done in Christ. And so if you're here this morning and, and, and you don't have these promises, you don't have this peace, you don't have this hope of salvation, this hope of redemption found only in Jesus Christ. And today, the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to repent of your sins and embrace the promises that God has given, found only in Christ Jesus. Today is the day for you to taste the grace of God. When you taste the grace of God, the next thing that comes is the peace of God. And for us, for us that have done this, as we look back, we have tasted these seven I wills of redemption. There's only one response for us, and that is to worship. And worship is not only on Sunday mornings or in life group, but worship every single day, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days of the year. That we, that we worship the Lord. That we love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. We love our neighbor as ourselves. And we go in the Lord and be the great.
Amen.